seated. As you're being seated, Aaron Musgrave is going to come right now. Aaron, if you'd come and read the scripture for us, and uh, he's going to pray for us this morning, so go ahead and take your Bible, and Aaron will tell you what to turn to. Today I'll be reading from Zechariah chapter 9, starting with verse 9. Rejoice so greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, full of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the warhorse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double, for I have bent Judah as my bow, and have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior sword. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for giving us an opportunity to gather here together as a church to worship you and to study in the word. God, I'd like to thank you that you've made your purpose and desire for us clear throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, how we can look to the old to see prophecies that are fulfilled in the new. God, please be with us this Easter season that we would be able to look to you and to desire you. Please be with the lost and allow them to feel the call that you have for them and save that we would continue to grow in your word. Yes, name I pray. Amen. Amen. Children, we're going to ask those of you who are being going to children's church this morning, you can be dismissed at this time for children's church. And I'm going to go ahead and ask our ushers to come and help take up this morning's offering. Thank you, Ms. Marcia. And I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Psalm chapter 16 in the Old Testament, Psalm 16. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there should be one underneath the chair you're sitting in or close to you. And as we stand in the honor of the reading of God's Word, we invite you to take that Bible and turn to Psalm 16. A miktam of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows who run, those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, or take their names on my lips. Verse 5, the Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen from me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. 
I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Verse 9. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray together again. Father, we bow this morning before you again and we thank you and praise you that you've blessed us with grace to not only with a place to meet this morning but Lord also with, for the, a desire that you've given us to meet together. Maybe for some of us that desire is not quite what it ought to be. We wax and wane. Oh God, how we are in constant need of our hearts being stirred by the truth of the gospel. Maybe we've been spending too much time nibbling at the table of the world this week and we're full and our souls are saturated with things that won't profit to us for eternity. And so God, we ask that you'd be so gracious and merciful that as we've sung the gospel this morning and prayed it and now as it's preached, Lord, that we would see this truth, Lord. We'd see it as if we've seen it for the first time, and maybe for some it is, and it would stir us, Lord. It would stir us to seek you more intentionally in the coming week and to spread the gospel more fervently. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. On Wednesday nights, we begin going through with the kids. We've got about 30, 34 kids that's coming on Wednesday nights. Uh, right now that one is over for our Pilgrim's Progress study. We're doing a special study that I'm leading and some adults and parents are helping me out and it's been, re it's been interesting. It's been a lot of fun. And if, for those of you who have not read Pilgrim's Progress, Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory. It's a story uh, with two meanings and it was written by John Bunyan uh, during the, uh, really he was a Puritan, so about uh, the 17th century, 1600s, he, he wrote that maybe perhaps when he was in jail for preaching the gospel. He was a Baptist and Pilgrim's Progress is about uh, the, the man named Christian, a fictional, fictional character named Christian who's on his way to what's called the Celestial City, which stands for heaven. We told you it's a story with two meanings, right? And so Christian, uh, at the beginning of the story, finds himself reading a book, and as he's reading this book, he discovers that he's living in the, a city. The name of his hometown is called the City of Destruction. And he's about to be destroyed along with everybody else in that town if they don't get out because of their sin. Because he's reading in this book that he is a sinner and along comes a guy named Evangelist who says, yes, you are, and the way to get rid of your sin is to go through this narrow gate. In fact, Christian became so convicted about his sin that it caused a great burden upon him. And so throughout the opening chapters of Pilgrim's Progress, Christian is, is talking about his burden that he's carrying because now as he's been convicted of his sin, he has a burden. He has guilt because of his sin. And he wants to get rid of it, but he doesn't know how. And he says, you go through that narrow gate, and there's a place where you can get rid of it. And last Wednesday night, we were studying that he went through that narrow gate. After some had tried him not to, some said, go to Mount Sinai, go to Mr. Legality's town, or go to Mr. Morality's town. And, and they told him, yeah, do the Ten Commandments, and that'll get rid of your burden. And he found out that it only made his burden heavier to try to do the Ten Commandments and try to be good. It only made his burden heavier. 
He found out that there was nothing he could do to get rid of his sin and get rid of his guilt. But when he went through the narrow gate, he came to a place called Calvary. And when he came to the place called Calvary, his burden fell off his back. It rolled into a grave and covered up and went there forever. And he jumped up and down three times and cheered because his burden was gone. That's why we're here this morning. Because that burden that rolled at Calvary, we know that that payment upon Calvary's mountain on the cross was accepted because three days later, he rose again. But first, Jesus had to travel into Jerusalem. The disciples were amazed as Jesus traveled to Jerusalem because he had told them more than once, boys, listen up. The Son of Man's going to be betrayed and three days later he's going to rise again. He's going to be crucified, but three days later he's going to, be, he's going to rise again. And one day they were on their way to Jerusalem and the, and the Bible says the disciples were amazed as he set his face like flint going to Jerusalem knowing what was going to happen. And when he got to Jerusalem, there were shouts of Hosanna. And not much later, of course, there were shouts of crucifying. For Jesus, the road to Jerusalem was a path of death, but ultimately it was a path of life for us. You remember this, that the way to glory is through suffering. And Jesus says for us to take up our cross and follow him. But the end of that road, the end of that path, there's a path of life. Amen? This is what the psalmist writes about here in Psalm 16, which is about Jesus. And we'll see that before the end of the message is over, I hope. This psalmist fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The psalmist David says in verse 11, you've made known to me, you've revealed to me. He didn't discover it himself. You see that in verse 11? You have made known to me the path of life. I didn't figure this out on my own. I didn't earn this. It was given to me. It was revealed to me. It was manifested and made known to me, this path of life. So the question I want us to seek to answer this morning about this subject, the path of life, eternity, living forever, going to heaven and being with Jesus one day. The question I want to ask us this morning to ponder is this. What are the signs which must mark our way as we travel the path of life? If you're going down the road somewhere on your way to somewhere maybe you've not been before, there's certain indications that you're going the right way, correct? Maybe it's a billboard. Maybe it's an interstate sign. Maybe it's uh, some old homestead or something like that. And it's an indication that you're on your right way. There are signs that you're on the right way. So what are the signs which must mark our way as we travel the path of life? What are the indications that we're actually traveling the path of life, that it's been made known to us? I want to share four with you this morning. Four signs. Number one is this. Dependence on God through satisfaction in God. You want to know whether or not you're traveling the path of life, the, travel, the path of life, eternity's been made known to you. What must mark your way as you travel this path of life, if it has been made known to you? First of all, dependence on God through satisfaction in God. We've heard a lot about cities of refuge and the news and things like that where refugees are coming and sometimes they are immigrants and they find themselves in a city of refuge where the uh, laws don't seem to apply and they're protected as long as they stay within that city of refuge. And of course for that refugee or immigrant, maybe they're illegal immigrant, perhaps that is a, a, a safe place for them. It's a good thing for them even though there's a lot of uh, debate about it. 
So when the Bible says here, if you look in your Bible in Psalm 16, verse 1, preserve me, O God, for in you I take what? I take refuge. God, protect me. Preserve me. Why? Because I'm taking refuge in you. You're my city of refuge. You're my place where I'm going to and I'm, I'm depending on. There's this entire dependence upon the psalmist. David is saying, I, I depend upon you entirely. If you're traveling the path to life, it must be marked by entire dependence upon God. Entire dependence upon God. None on yourself. Nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. Entire dependence upon God. I say to the Lord, verse 2, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. How is this entire dependence upon God? You're traveling the path of life. Everything around us is shouting out, work your way to heaven. If you don't do your part, you're going to hell. But we're shouting on Sunday, we're singing on Sunday, Jesus paid it all. Do we believe that? I believe we do. But the world's battling us every day as we're traveling the path of life. No, that's too simple, that's too easy. You gotta do your part. And yet, there's to be entire dependence upon Christ and what he has done, what God and what he has done. David didn't see that. He didn't, he didn't know that in its fullness in verse one. But we're on this side of the cross. We have to interpret it in light of what Christ has done and how he has came, right? And our entire dependence upon God is an entire dependence upon Jesus Christ and what he's done through the cross. How does such dependence, how is that sustained though? We want, to we want to depend entirely upon God. The world's fighting against it. It goes completely against the world's philosophy and the major religions of the world outside Christianity say the opposite, work your way to heaven. So how do we sustain this entire dependence on God? Well, that's point number one again. Dependence on God through satisfaction in God. Some of you may have watched the NCAA tournament and Virginia Cavaliers uh, won the NCAA championship. And their coach, Tony Bennett, is a devoted follower of Jesus. And one of the quotes that was kind of going across the internet that you may have come across as well from an interview back in 2014 or sometime around then, he said this when he was asked about his coaching career and about basketball. And Tony Bennett, Coach Bennett, said, I have great things in my life my love for my wife, my love for coaching, my love for basketball. All those things are wonderful things. But when you line them up in comparison to Christ and the relationship you have with him, what he's done for you and what he's given you, they don't compare. That's the greatest truth I know. I love that last phrase of that quote. That's the greatest truth I know. You look in your Bible in verse 2. You looking at your Bible? Essentially, it seems that that's what David is saying in verse 2. I say to the Lord, You're my Lord. I'm, I'm depending entirely upon you. I have no good apart from you. Apart from you, you line everything up, you, you give me everything I've got, my family, everything, my health. And he'd been through a lot of things, bad things in his life too, and some of it he brought it on himself. But, but, but if I have all this stuff, 
but I don't have you. It's no good. I have no good apart from you. There's this satisfaction that saturates Psalm 16 that we see beginning in verse 1 and 2. It's a satisfaction that the psalmist has in God. And so his entire dependence upon God, what keeps him going is he's satisfied in God. If he's being chased by his son Absalom, and his tears are running down his face and he don't understand what's going on and he cries out in Psalm 13, God, what's going on? How long is this going to go on? How long? How long? Yet there's a sustaining faith and joy inside of him because he has God as his refuge. Paul said essentially the same thing, didn't he? Philippians 3.8, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for his sake. I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I want to ask you a question this morning. Are you playing the religion game? Are, you know, I'm on Jesus' team. Or do you love Jesus? Is he a treasure to you? Have you come to the place in your life where you can't imagine not following Jesus? How satisfied are we with what God has done for us in Christ? So one of the signs that needs to mark our way if we're on the path of life is an entire dependence on God sustained through a satisfaction in God. Secondly, another sign that needs to mark our way is devotion to God with the people of God. Yesterday we had church work day here. And uh, it's one of the, th the monthly things we're trying to encourage folks to do together as a church, whether that be outreach, discipleship. This was, this was more... Discipleship plus fellowship and hanging out. And we had such a blessed day. We had a great turnout yesterday. Thank you for all the volunteers that came. You notice the parking lot was striped out here. That was kind of popping out at us this morning as we pulled up. And we just had a good time, really, uh, apart from the things that were accomplished, it was a good time of fellowship, which was one of the biggest reasons we did that, was to draw closer together and have fellowship. I was in Tim Johnson's Sunday school class this morning. I just enjoyed listening to the different comments in Sunday school class about the Tower of Babel and, and the fellowship. I was at church yesterday with my kids, and several of you brought your kids to the church work day, and I noticed my daughter Lydia and some of the other girls, they had helped stuff Easter eggs and done some other things, and they were all holding hands, walking down the sidewalk, hanging out together. And During the lunchtime later on, I noticed my oldest was sitting with some of his buddies, and Micaiah was sitting with some of his buddies, and Titus was sitting with me. That's <laughs> poor Titus. And I'm so thankful that my, my kids enjoy being here as part of this church family. This is, their friends are here. The reason I say all these things about the interaction in the church family and being part of it and enjoying this is I look in verse 3, and I see what it says. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones. <laughs> Do we think that about each other? <laughs> All my brothers and sisters are excellent. Do we always think that towards each other? Probably not. But in comparison to verse 4, those who run after another God, then we, we should desire the fellowship of the excellent ones of the saints, those set apart. As for the saints' lands, they are the excellent, excellent ones in whom is all my delight. My question is, why does David delight in the saints? Why is it that we do or should delight in the saints? 
which are Christians, one another, here. Why is that? Because we share a common satisfaction in God that we have found the one who has saved our souls. He more biblically, he has found us and sought us and saved us and rescued us. These saints in whom his soul delights and whom we should delight, they share his satisfaction. And I think he delights in them because the fellowship and company of the saints is a means of his being preserved by God. Remember he says, preserve me, O God, in verse one. Whether or not that's what he had in mind for sure here, we know that's true in the rest of scripture, that a means of our persevering and being preserved by God in our running the race, in our walking the path of life that's been made known to us is the fellowship of the church. So. There's this exclusive devotion to God with the people of God that he expresses to an extent in verse three. We see in verse four this exclusive devotion. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Other people who are not the saints, I don't delight in them. We wanna reach them, right? But he doesn't delight in them. They're running after other gods. They're pursuing other paths and there's a way that leads, uh, that seems right to a man that leads to destruction. Many there are that go that way. He says, their drink offerings of blood I'll not pour out or take their names on my lips. I'm not gonna have the kind of fellowship and hanging out with those who don't seek Jesus like I do with the saints in verse three. Gonna have lost friends, but I'm not gonna hang out and fellowship and do the things that they're doing because it's not gonna do anything for my soul, Right? But it's gonna do something for my soul when I hang out and I have company with the fellowship of the saints. It's already done something for my soul this morning. We were singing about the resurrection of Christ together. Or how we were in Sunday school fellowshipping over the word together. That does something for my soul. Do what's good for your soul. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So this exclusive devotion to God is with the people of God. So brothers and sisters, if you're gonna travel the path of life, if it's been made known to you, there should be a deep and abiding love for his church. I've got a close friend of mine that's in the military, that was in the military with me, and we stay in touch with social media, and I witnessed him a lot, and he went to a church with me a lot, and. He's made a profession of faith, and I'm not sure where he's at. Uh, I don't feel good about where he's at spiritually, even though he's made a profession of faith because he doesn't go to church. I mean, he, he posted uh, a couple of weeks ago. You know, I used to go to church all the time, and I found that there's so much hypocrisy in the church, blah, 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 same old stuff you hear all the time. And uh, I, I, I know that all I need is just me and God, basically, with no love for the people that Jesus has purchased that's not a sign that he's traveling the path of life. I'm concerned for his soul. Devotion to God with a people of God, this marks one who travels the path of life, a desire to be with God's people. And not just on Sunday mornings, right? Number three, confidence in the goodness and guidance of God 
A confidence in the goodness and guidance of God marks the path of life. So some of you here last Sunday when we shared the sad news about the passing of Jason Hembacher. I think I have a picture of him and his family up here. Whether it pops up or not, I want to speak to that, his passing. Uh, his visitation was Thursday and some of us went down for that and stayed the night and went to the funeral uh, Friday morning there in Saint, near St. Louis in Afton. Jason, if those of you don't know, was guy that I met when I first came here when we were seeking to partner in relation to missions and of course he was in St. Louis with our 70,000 Bosnians and then we began to partner with him and went. some of us have been to St. Louis and been to his church, he's been here and preached and then we went to Bosnia with Jason a couple summers and got to know his family Jason's 46 years old, the same age as myself and got the news last Saturday night that text Jason Hembacher just passed away just died of a heart attack and you know, you, what? He was just here a few weeks ago for Brandon Moorhead's funeral, speaking about our joy in Christ. And so we were at the funeral Friday morning, and um, as it began, the brother-in-law said a few words and led in and began to lead in song. But before that, I, I noticed Jason's mother come in with his her husband, and sit on the front row along with Rochelle and, and the kids, Isaac and Hannah. And Jason's mother put, his head, put her head over on her husband's shoulder and just began to sob quietly. And Isaac put his head over on his mother's shoulder. And they began to sing, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Who gives and takes away. You give and take away. My heart will choose to say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. And everybody began to sing. And Jason's mother's head raised up and her hands raised up and she began to bless the Lord. And Rochelle's hands raised up and she began to bless the Lord. And boy, I couldn't, you know, that got me. Where does that kind of extraordinary confidence come from? It comes from knowing that God is good, just like we sang about this morning, in the sovereign goodness of God, in the sovereignty of God, that what he does is always good. And if you look in your Bible, in verse 5, the Bible says, the Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. He's not running after other gods. By grace, the Lord is my portion in my cup. I have him, I'm satisfied in him, I'm depending entirely upon him. And he says, you see the last part of verse five? You hold my lot. A lot was like a portion assigned to someone in Israel when they were dividing up the land. What I have, you hold it. Now that's, that's security, right? That's confidence. You hold my lot, Lord. It's in your hands. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. You've been good, and you hold my lot. 
And there's this sovereign, this confidence in the sovereign goodness of God that's satisfying David. And a confidence in God's sovereign guidance. Look at verse 7. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also my heart instructs me. One translation says that even at night when my thoughts trouble me, the Lord is speaking to me. He's counseling me. You have trouble sleeping at night or things get on your mind at night about someone you love or something going on at work or something like that. And even at night my heart instructs me. He's guiding me. He's speaking to me. Remember, recalling scripture to me. It's the Lord who is guiding. And of course, folks, the way the Lord guides us on this path of life is the Bible. If you want to travel the path of life, preserved by God, persevering in faith, we need the Bible. That's how he guides us. And so when you find out your friend or your husband, or your dad, or your son just passed away. There's a confidence in what this Bible says. God's sovereign guidance about what it says about eternity. I have set the Lord, he says in verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. What does David mean when he says, I've set the Lord always before me? I believe he simply means that he dwells upon the Lord. He meditates upon the Lord. He does what Joshua 1.8 says, this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but shall meditate on it day and night, these words, and then you'll make your way prosperous, and then you'll have good success. And we have, on this side of the cross, Jesus, who's come and fulfilled the book of the law that David dwelt upon. We have a fuller revelation, a complete revelation, and need no more. Only look to the Bible for guidance. If you're going to do something different than what the Bible says, you can be assured you're not being guided rightly. God's sovereign guidance. Look at what he says in verse eight. I've set the Lord always before me because, because he is at my right hand. I've set him before me. And for us, that means we're, we're, we're saturating his word in. We're focused upon his word. God, you're guiding me. Therefore, I shall not be shaken. You say, well, preacher, there's things in my life that have shook me to the core. Me too. Even this week, shaken, but not shaken to unbelief. Because the Bible explains that he's good no matter what. He's bringing glory to himself, and he's doing it for our joy. If we doubt that, just remember what he did for us on the cross. So when it says, I shall not be shaken, doesn't mean the path is easy. It means hard things are going to come that are going to shake us, but it won't shake us to unbelief. And we won't be shaken out of his hand. So these are signs which mark the way as we travel the path of life. Are you entirely depending upon the Lord, satisfied in the Lord? 
Is there a devotion to God with the people of God? Thirdly, confidence in the goodness and guidance of God. Confidence in the sovereignty of God. And fourthly and finally, a fourth sign that we're traveling the path of life is an assurance. An assurance of eternal joy with God. Assurance of eternal joy with God. An old minister, H.C. Leupold, said this about these verses we're getting ready to look at. The boldness of it all leaves the reader breathless. How can a man see all men dying and note that all children of men before him have died without exception and still say, God can't let that happen to me. Because that is essentially what David is saying here in verses 9 and following. Look at verse 9. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. There's an assurance. There's a security that he has. Verse 10 gives the explanation. For, see that word for in verse 10? He's getting ready to tell you why. Verse 9 is true. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Now that's a Hebrew word that a lot of people uh, have debated about for a long time, but it really it just means death, the abode of the dead. He says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One seek or see corruption. What a thing for him to say. As H.C. Leupold says, there's people dying all around him. The children of men have died for him before. And he says, that's not going to happen to me. Well, notice he says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Though he dies, he will not stay dead. And it seems to me that what David is saying is that the worst thing that could happen is not going to happen. The worst thing that can happen is to die and not rise again to eternal life. But why does David have such assurance? Has he just been so good that he concludes? No, we know David's not been so good. Has he been so good that he concludes that God's just not going to let me die? Or at least they did. David prophesies about Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, I'm going to read some verses where Peter quotes these verses as he's preaching to show us how they point us to Jesus and how Jesus fulfills Psalm 16. And it explains these verses for us in Psalm 16. Acts chapter 2 Verse 24 says this, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So what does he have in mind here as Peter's preaching? He has the resurrection of Jesus in mind. Verse 26, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, to Sheol, at place of death. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. But look at verse 29. 
Peter tells us who it's pointing to again. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. And look over yonder, his tomb is right over there is what he says. And his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and not knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, or it says knowing that God had sworn that, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and that we are all witnesses. David's confidence about resurrection and not about not being stayed Dead is found in the prophecy fulfilled by Jesus. It's found in the fact that Jesus is the one that died, but his, he did not see corruption. Three days later, he rose again. So this psalm is about Jesus. It's about Christ. He alone faithfully walks the road to Jerusalem. His face set like flint. The disciples, they're amazed. The crowd shouting, Hosanna! On Palm Sunday, his last supper, we know the scenes, his prayer in Gethsemane, Judas's kiss, his body beaten to a bloody pulp, the soldiers laughing, his mother crying, Pilate washing his hands as if to say, now I'm innocent of his death. His cry, it is finished, and his limp body laid in the grave, and the disciples hiding. But on the third day, he arose. And our assurance of eternal joy, this is point number four, right? Confidence, assurance of eternal joy with God. Our assurance of eternal joy has nothing to do with us saying, yeah, look at me, I've lived this good life, and yeah, that's never gonna happen to me. I'm not gonna stay dead, no. Our assurance of eternal joy is how Jesus fulfilled Psalm 16 through his death and his resurrection. If I'm trusting in that, then I can have assurance and confidence. Our assurance of eternal joy is in Christ. And what in Christ means, if you read the New Testament letters of Paul over and over and over, he says, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. He's talking about a spiritual union that he has in Jesus. And that takes place by faith. It's by faith, trusting and relying, putting your entire dependence upon God, God having granted you faith and repentance, that you are, you are made one with Christ. You're, you're found in Christ. You're clothed in his righteousness. We picture that when we baptize someone, right? That we're saying, I, I was dead in my sin, but I was buried with Christ. My sin's dead and buried. I've been raised with Christ. I'm in Christ by faith, right? And so our assurance of eternal joy by faith is to be in Christ and not in Adam. What do you say about Adam? What do you, where'd that come from? Because the Bible teaches us, if you don't know this already, that when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, that the whole earth was cursed, and we all inherit Adam's sin nature. And in our natural state, we are in Adam. We are in union with Adam. And our default destination is hell. We don't want to stay in Adam. We want to be in Christ. And the good news 
anyone can be in Christ. Amen. Amen. Anyone can be in Christ. No matter what you've done, no matter how many times you've done it, call upon the name of the Lord. Repent of your sins, turn from your sins, flee to Jesus, and you will be saved. By the grace of God, you will be saved. So find yourself in Adam. Closing question I want to ask you this morning. It's one I thought about myself. When I sense this satisfaction of David and see it throughout Psalm 16, his joy throughout Psalm 16, the question I asked myself was, how satisfied am I right now in Christ? When you come to Psalm 16, verse 11, where he says, you make known to me the path of life. You revealed this to me, this eternity. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. I almost always share that when I preach a funeral of a believer. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That phrase, in your presence is fullness of joy, is key, folks. The question I'd ask you, along with being satisfied in Christ, then, is this. How are you practicing the presence of Christ? Practicing the presence of Christ. What's that mean, preacher? That's kind of a funny phrase, practicing the presence of Christ. How are you going about nurturing your relationship with Jesus? This is good, all right? You're here. This is good. But don't let it stop with Sunday morning, right? Practice the presence of Christ by fellowship with other believers at other times. Practice the presence of Christ through prayer and reading the word of God. But also, don't walk in the way of the scornful. Don't stand in the path. Don't seat in the scornful of the wicked. Be very careful as you have lost friends, how it is you go about interacting with lost friends. Be very careful as we live in a sinful world how much you're nibbling on the table of the world throughout the week. So full of it that when you come into a place where you could enjoy the presence of God, you're like my kids coming and saying, I don't feel like eating supper. I ate too many donuts this afternoon. You can't practice the presence of God and be filled up with him if you've been nibbling on the table of the world all the other times. Jason Hembacher's life verses, verse 11, I didn't know that when I was planning to preach Psalm 16 until I read the obituary the next day and saw that. I think uh, when we're practicing the presence of God, what we're doing is we're practicing for heaven. I asked the kids Wednesday night about going to Celestial City in our Pilgrim's Progress study and we talked about all the joys and wonders of it that we had read that night. I said, well, how great would it be to be in the Celestial City and Jesus not be there? And they kind of looked at me. To practice the presence of Christ is to practice for heaven, to practice the fact that we're going to be in the very presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think this is why this verse is one that Jason said was his life verse. When we were in Bosnia a couple summers ago, the second summer we'd went, Jason and his family were there, Rochelle and the kids, and one night we were, we were all singing, and uh, some of you guys that went with me, you'll remember, we were all singing after the students had left, 
just as believers. And uh, a song that was new to most people in our group that went, it wasn't new to me, but most people in our group was Jesus is Better. And Jason is a great guitarist and song leader, and he led us in song that night. And I remember how we sang and rejoiced that Jesus is better. Brenda was with us that summer, too. I think I've got a picture up here of Miss Brenda and Jason. And Miss Brenda, of course, passed away just a few weeks ago and had such a heart as a prayer warrior for, for the Bosnian people. One of the, the lines of this song, Jesus is Better, says, In all my sorrows, Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. Because I wrestle with that, right? In all my sorrows, I know Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. Increase my faith. And another, every time we sing this as a church, because we've sung it many times since we learned it in Bosnia that summer. I love it, and we're about to sing it. One of the lines of this song I love the most when we're singing this together is the line that says, Our souls declaring, you know, our souls together. Our souls declaring, Jesus is better. And we're saying right now, make our hearts believe. We've come together on Sunday mornings. Lord, increase our faith, sustain us this week. Help us to have an entire dependence on you through a satisfaction in you that's being nibbled at by the world and fought fought at by the world. Make my heart believe. Brenda and Jason, their faith has been made sight. And one day our souls will declare with them in fullness of joy, Jesus is better. You don't have to make my heart believe anymore. Jesus is better. That's what causes us to raise our hands when there's tears down our face and our hearts are breaking. You give and take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Because Jesus is better I just want to ask you this question do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior is he a a name to you because of your parents or grandparents or because we live in America where there's a lot of Christians or have you found in Jesus Christ a treasure that you would give everything for that, that if everyone who's, who names the name of Jesus that you know said, I'm not following Jesus anymore, it's just too hard, but you would say, don't do that, but if you do, I'm still going with him. I'm still following no matter what. If I'm the only one left standing, by his grace, I'm still going to follow him even if you go. Has he become a treasure to your soul? Because i got a feeling... There are many people sitting in churches like this who've not come to faith and repentance in Christ and found salvation in Jesus, that he has satisfied their soul. We would love to talk with you about that because we want you to share the joy that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen, church. So we'd ask you during this time, we sing this song if you'd like to, or when the service is over and I'm standing at the back doors, or another person that you know is a Christian, that you would express in some way. Come forward, come after the service, and let's talk about where, you're, where you stand with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word, and we praise you that you're our God and that you have been so gracious to make yourself known to us who are believers. You've made known to us the path of life. 
And we're fighting, Lord. We're battling every day. We're fighting during the week. We're struggling with sin. We're struggling with suffering, questions that we have. Doubts, sometimes we have doubts, God. But we thank you that you've brought us to this place to sustain our faith this morning. Make our hearts believe. And we pray for those who have not been born again, who've not come to the place where they, Jesus is the treasure to faith and repentance, God, that you would make their heart believe. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together right now and sing together and praise the Lord together for who he is and what he's done. Let this be our prayer together this morning. You come if God's speaking. There is no other so sure and steady my hope is held in your hand when castles crumble and breath is fleeting upon this rock i will stand yeah upon this rock i will stand Glory, glory, we have no other king but Jesus, Lord of all. We raise the anthem, our loudest praises swing, we crown him Lord of sorrows 
Jesus is better, make my heart believe in every victory. Jesus is better, make my heart believe than any comfort. Jesus is better, make my heart believe more than all riches. Jesus is better, make my heart believe. And our souls declaring, Jesus is better, make my heart believe. And our song eternal, Jesus is better. But Jesus, Lord of all, glory, glory, we have no other king but Jesus, Lord of all, we raise the anthem, our loudest praises ring, we crown him, Lord of people say amen to that amen we're so glad you chose to worship with us today if you're here this morning and you have questions about anything or need prayer and i always stand at the back doors i'd love with you if you're visiting with us today and had a chance to meet you chance to meet with you too i'm gonna ask brent cloyd he's our director of missions it's the greater wabash baptist association brent i'm gonna ask you to come up and close us in prayer this morning if we could borrow a microphone let him pray for us and as uh before he prays, I want to remind you about the Easter egg hunt outreach this afternoon. Invite your friends to come. You lost friends so we can share the gospel with them. And uh, Marsha needs some help too. So how about put some of your plans off you had for this afternoon and come on down and spend an hour with us or so about 2 o'clock or maybe get here a little bit earlier than that and help Miss Marsha out because we appreciate Miss Marsha, don't we? Amen? All right. <laughs> All right. Brother Brent, please close us in prayer if you would. Let's pray. Lord, it has been so good to be in your house today. We've walked through the week and there have been many things that have made our hearts sorrowful. But we look to your word and we look to eternity and we look to what you've done for us and our hearts find joy. So Lord, as we leave here today, Help us to keep focus, our focus upon the eternal and to understand that our mission in this world is to tell others about the glory and the power 
and the wonderful work of Jesus and the eternity that he promises and to help them to know how to reach that place through faith in Jesus. We ask now, Lord, that you dismiss us in your grace and in your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. What is the gospel? It all begins with God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, to rule over the garden. God told them they could eat from any tree that they wanted to in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything was perfect in the garden. They had a perfect relationship with the land, a perfect relationship with each other, a perfect relationship with God until they chose to rebel against God and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it brought about separation between them and God. Man has always tried to bridge the separation on his own terms and in his own strength. Whether it's building a ladder of morality and trying to be good enough for God, or even in the Old Testament example, when men built a tower into the heavens trying to reach God on their own. A more contemporary example comes from 1961, when the Russians were first successful in sending a man into outer space. Upon returning, the Russian cosmonaut remarked, we have been to space and we didn't find God or heaven there. A popular professor and author, C.S. Lewis, responded to the Russian cosmonaut. He said that looking for God in outer space is kind of like Hamlet, one of the characters in Shakespeare's plays, looking for Shakespeare in the attic of his home. Lewis said that for Hamlet to have a relationship with Shakespeare, Shakespeare would literally have to write himself into the story. That is the gospel. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Almost 2,000 years ago, the Bible says that Jesus, in fulfillment to Old Testament prophecies, was born of a virgin. Even as a child, he lived a perfect life. At the age of 30, he began his public ministry. He attracted followers. For three years, he taught, he healed, and he made bold claims, such as saying that he alone was the only way to God. The religious and political leaders did not like these teachings. They invoked a riot against Jesus. They brought about false accusations leading to a trial and to a sentencing of death by public crucifixion. The Bible says that while Jesus hung on the cross, that God placed all of the sin of all of mankind on Jesus. Jesus hung on the cross as our substitute. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. They took Jesus down from the cross and they put him in a tomb. They rolled a large stone at the entrance of the tomb so no one could get in or out. There were Roman soldiers who were posted on guard to keep people from coming to take Jesus's body. But on the third day, according to scripture, he rose again. After being seen by many eyewitnesses and giving instruction to his followers, he ascended back into the heaven where he now sits at the right hand of God and serves as our advocate before the Father. So what does this have to do with you? The Bible says that we have all sinned and that we all fall short of God's standard of holiness. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no way to get rid of the burden of sin on our own. 
God calls all men everywhere to believe in Christ, repent of sins, and trust Christ to live a new life. As we look back and believe in what God has done through the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection, as we repent and turn from our sins, as we trust Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we have peace with God and the forgiveness of sins. So let's review. It all begins with God. Because of our sin, we are separated from God. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Jesus died in our place for our sins and rose again on the third day. As we believe in Christ, repent from our sins, and trust Jesus for new life, we have peace with God and forgiveness of sins. That is the gospel.